I will save that one for later. But okay, I think but I met you on a soccer field somewhere when you were playing for Cisco. Uh, yes, and actually, I I used to do training with you. Yes, you did actually. For who were you coaching? U nineteen. Yeah, U nineteen. I think it was a seventy nine age group actually. Seventy nines. Yeah, <laughs> and I was at seventy five. Maybe it was eighty. Eighty. I remember there was a, a tall blonde kid on that team. What? Uh, Jeremy Youngquist. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever happened to him? Uh, he's an exterminator these days, I hear. Ooh. He owns a, a little uh, exterminating company out in North Phoenix. Nice. I have nothing to exterminate yet. <laughs> Other than children. I got to get, get rid of two more on my house. I think one's coming back, though. So I'll have three, and then I'll have to get rid of three. But, uh, uh, Kenny, t- tell us a little bit about yourself and how uh, you've been involved in youth soccer in Arizona. So I, I got involved, uh, I think, around 1988 with uh, youth soccer in Arizona. Uh, with the, actually, it started with Deer Valley. It was Deer Valley Soccer Club. Moved over to Cisco. I was one of the Arizona national teams under uh, Frank Martin's team, which was the Flames at the time. Oh, and, Cisco Flames. I remember them. Yeah. And so uh, stayed in Cisco, I don't know, maybe 30 years, 28, 29 years. Were you there when they uh, crumbled and are no longer existent? I uh, was not there. I left a couple of years before. Oh, that so it's happened. not your fault. Okay. No, yeah. All right. Someone else's fault. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll give I'll give it credit to the to the board that was there at that time. But uh, yeah, it was unfortunate to see that club go down. Um, they had a lot of good years, as you know. Yeah. Uh, National championship or two, a lot of regional championships. And a ton of state championships. A ton of state championships. One point, I think the whole girls and boys side were all Cisco teams. Yeah. On on girls, too? Girls was quite a few. It was uh, Mark Hughes era, you know, uh, Mike D'Amato. Those guys were doing really well on yeah. the girls' side. Yeah, I remember Shamrocks used to have a good girls program, not so much on the boys. That's yeah. kind of, I left Shamrocks to Cisco. But, um, that's right. They were the Shamrocks. Shamrocks, yeah. yeah. Shamrocks. That's a good name. <laughs> I still have my Shamrock uh, jersey. Yeah. I kept it black and green. But, um, uh, I wanted, I wanted you on the show to talk to you a little bit about where you've seen you soccer back in the early 90s to what is what it is today. Uh, what do you remember about the early 90s um, as far as talent pool? How many clubs do you remember back then? Um, and what the difference is today? Yeah, early 90s, it was not, uh, it wasn't like anything like it is today. Um, we probably had, I don't know, I want to say about 10 or 15 clubs in all of Phoenix. It wasn't, wasn't anything like it is now, um, we had, uh, in my opinion, the, the, and I was just talking to Harry Demos about this the other day, um, the talent pool is so diluted now that you have to look across several different lines to, to bring in the best talent instead of you, you don't have three or four teams in a market that are actually doing very well and, and you can really spot. And I use the Cisco Flames as an example on a lot of those because that was a group that I was uh, primarily involved with after uh, after my team uh, was absorbed by them. 
Um, I worked with Frank Martin and, and him and a bunch of people got together and it wasn't hard to find the talent. It was Santos at the time. Uh, I think Fort Lowell had a great team at the time in that age group. Um, a couple of guys from uh, Mesa. Mesa. A couple guys from Sereno at the time, I, th- I think, or maybe that was an offshoot of Juventus. And uh, they all got together, put together one team. It wasn't hard to find the players. They put the coaches in a hat, and Willie Watson ended up coaching the team, and it was a great team. Um, but it was not uh, – we didn't have to search in 15 different clubs like you would have to do now to try to, to – I think it's so diluted now that it's hard to find – everybody's got a good player, but it's hard to find that five or ten different people that can make a, a difference at the national level. Yeah, I've noticed that – um, that even like when I'm doing recruiting and they're like, Hey, there's a good player over here and I'll go watch them, but they're playing on an average team. And some of the time you can't even recognize them as a good player because they're playing with average players. Um, so the talent pool isn't together to really showcase who can play. So I have to go on a lot of recommendation just to find top talent. Oh, I, yeah, I can totally see that. Uh, you know, with with the exception, I, I think the residential academy down in Castle Graham was doing fairly well when it yeah. first opened as RSL, and now it's Barca. I, I don't know too much about what they're doing down there now, but other than those, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that happens up here in Phoenix is the same same people doing the same thing that they've always done. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think the the removal of competition hurts too, like. So, like, we, we now have ASA, and then we have U.S. Club. We got that great divide. Um, and uh, they typically uh, the, the won't play each other. And a lot of teams won't, don't do State Cup anymore, and, and it's kind of, like, beneath them. They're beyond that. Um, there's a lot of hiding going, going around, uh, and it's getting worse and worse. So, um Back in the in the early '90s, State Cup was a big deal. Oh yeah, that's a that's the biggest change now. Is you have all these different venues that you can get to a national championship. At the time, you could win state. From there, you could win regionals, or maybe you could get into regionals on a wild card, and then from there you went to nationals. There wasn't all the different venues that there are now to get into the national league or to to become a a conference champion over here and, and segue yourself into eight teams, or I think, or 10 teams now that they have. They had four teams at the national level in the last tournament, as you as you know. So, I mean, it, it has changed a lot from that perspective. There's the ECNL and the MLS next, and there's all kinds of different venues that you can play through now. And a lot of that has to do with the uh, money those generate for U.S. soccer, the body. Yeah. And I don't know what they're going to be doing with that money because I remember before before COVID, uh, U.S. Soccer inherited like three hundred twenty million, and they were a big discussion of what they were going to do with that money. And of course, it went into science and facilities. So they they would spend a majority of it on for the national team to create a wonderful facility with. Um, a place that they have the, you know, next level of everything provided for those kids versus going into the inner cities and trying to develop talent or find talent um, with those players. They don't 
they're not going to, they'll, they'll give money. They'll, they'll give it out. They'll put fields in the inner city with uh, their uh, various field grants and stuff, but then no one's there to observe it. Um, they just say, look what we, we did this for the inner city. And then they're like, here you go. Here's a field and uh, we'll see you later. We'll never go near this place again. But um, I, I don't know what the end game is for us soccer as far as like they, I think they're just content. Let's just make the world cup, but never compete for world cup. So the question is, can we, uh, can we ever win a World Cup in this country? Is there a talent here to be able to do so? I think there's talent here, and, and I think uh, most of our previous national team coaches, having been to a symposium or some kind of uh, different venue where, where they have actually given a small talk, um, you know, some of our major components of uh, competition, and, uh, and some of them will even tell you, how do I compete against a European team when their kids are playing five days a week and the kids in the normal club systems are playing three days a week over here. So, um, or they will, you know, they'll talk about coaching education or, or how tough it is to actually ferret out the top talent because we don't as a, a group really have a good nose for, there's a lot of kids playing somewhere uh, you know, we'll use California as an example, or maybe even Arizona, where they got uh, two or three million people playing in one venue. How are you going to possibly watch all of those people? So there has to be some kind of a conduit uh, for them. And there there has been uh, some strives made with the different clubs, but with the pay-to-play model, that uh, the way it is, it also knocks out a certain percentage of those kids and they don't have a venue where they can be showcased or brought to play in the same competitive level as someone that's playing paying. This is where I see the biggest problem. So back when I played uh, Cisco with Asylum and then Syndicate, and we would always train together, um, there was an outpouring of recruiting from the parents to the coaches. Um, The community got got together, and we had some, crazy athletes back then um salvation army had its own club and and they had crazy talent future nfl guys out of salvation army um there was because everyone wanted to like hey we can win state cup or whatever everyone was competing with each other recruiting together and and as a community even board meetings with the coaches a lot of them are parents and stuff like that and they would all have discussion and it would be changing rapidly too. But now it, there's a great divide. We have a lot of coach, uh, uh, paid coaches, which I'm, by the way, I, I'm fine with people getting paid for the time, sure. get paid for your time. But the problem I have is when we're saying a, we want to identify talent and go to the next level when it, when they, uh, a world cup or anything, we, we were just, we're not even on the same playing field. They're like, we're, we're real, uh, realizing that we're in a situation that the clubs will find and then elevate somehow through academy system. That's what we're going to stick with. It's not working. Obviously it's not going to work, but um, uh, back to my point of making sure um, identifying talent within the community. So we now have paid, uh, paid coaches a lot from Europe and, and whatnot, and they're not really part of the community. They're in their own little world. They're like, you know, parents, 
can't talk to you. Uh, just you're just off to one side, and they just deal with what's available and who can pay and be part of their team or whatever it's going to work. But there, there's no like club identities. Like, hey, we want to win a say state title, to win a region, to win a national title. That's how you know high school. It's a big deal. Kids, you know, they care. They recruit there. Kids will go to high schools to try to win a state title because it's significant because there's only one. Sure. Um, so what I'm getting at is that we're not recruiting the communities anymore. It, we're recruiting who can pay to make sure they can be part of this system of playing in a just-for-fun team. This is all wrecked to me. We're not, I don't know what we're competing for. Everyone's competing for, can I get a scholarship? Can I get this? And like, can I go play pro the pathway to pro path? There's no like pathway to win a state title pathway to be, to win that is gone. Like, I don't understand. Like, like I would like to survey these kids. How many championships have you won? Like, what are we winning anymore? Right. I, I, I don't, I don't get it. I can see that. Um, and, and, I, I never had a problem with the, the paid coaching uh, idea. What I uh, The problem with that, though, is uh, coaches kind of become their own little business within the business of soccer. And, uh, uh, you know, whenever you have a client, well, we'll call them, that uh, they, you pay when you – the first dollar that you take, they become the, – that's when input starts, whether, whether you like it or not that's when people can start to dictate the pathway that you take as a coach. Uh, whether some, you know, somebody gives you more money than the uh, next person or somebody gives you an extra something on a trip uh, to try and influence your decisions as a coach. I think, I think that's where we get lost a lot um, in the paid model. And, and also uh, the fees just seem to be going up and up and up and up. And I mean, I can remember when registration for a kid was 25 bucks and now, to play a full season, it's probably somewhere upwards around twelve hundred bucks, maybe twenty four hundred yeah. bucks with training. But the other thing is, like ASA, it, Arizona Youth Soccer used to be big in the nineties. It was big, and, and it had a drop in the two thousands. Like you know, because it went more to competitive versus rack kind of focus. But ASA used used to be big. And it was run by one person, Leslie Drennan. She ran it by herself. And then it takes seven, eight people to run it full time. Yeah. I, That's a lot of money. That would be interesting to see what the numbers are now as opposed to what it was when she was in the office and, and had an office maid or assistant. Um, uh, I was on the board when Leslie was in, was in there uh, as the vice president. And I can tell you, she did a ton of work and was tirelessly, uh, constantly doing something for somebody. But she seemed to be able to do it in the confines of 10 hours. So, uh, you know, I'm, it'd be interesting to see what what level of uh, membership they have now, especially now that some of the clubs have went over to U.S. Club, as you were saying yeah. earlier. Did, which one do you do? And went to this MPL league and kind of left the state. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what the numbers are. Well, I, I know, I know they were always around 30,000 and then they would drop 
you know, to 28, 27,000. They would get up like 32,000. I remember when Jason Vanacore was president, that was one thing's like, we need to focus on rec. We need our numbers to increase. And now it's like, and ASA has a lot of money uh, built over time, but now all the vultures are coming in and saying, uh, oh, we need, we need a, a scheduler. We need all these things. And I get, you know, time, you know, want to deal with this stuff, but Leslie was able to do it by herself for years with volunteers and uh, some part-timers. But now it's just like people come in making six figures or pretty darn close and then leave. They get their money and leave. And it's like there's a CEO position of just take and go. A lot of, in my opinion, a lot of wasteful spending when we could do something different and actually uh, produce an ODP team per age group and actually make it a value instead of making it a fundraiser. Cause that's what it is. Make it like, let's identify the talent. Let's make that free, make something free that everyone has a chance to make it, make it meaningful. And people say, Oh, I, I play for ODP estate. People are like, I'm not going to try out for that garbage. Cause I'm part of ML snacks or whatever. Cause there's no, there's no significance anymore. I don't, everyone's like branding themselves differently and families just keep jumping to whatever brand they think it it is. And then they're like, oh, it's not as great as I thought. Now I'm going back home and to my home club and all this stuff. I, I don't know. It's a big mess. It's a Rubik's cube that cannot be solved and uh, doesn't seem that difficult. But when you have to, you have so many moving parts, like other people um, becomes a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, what you get on the practice field is not going to change a, a ton from day to day. It doesn't matter if you have Coach X or Coach Y. Uh, I think most of the fundamentals are going to get taught the way they're going to get taught and uh, still dribble, pass, or shoot in the confines of some technical ability here or there. Um, there's no real rocket scientist to it, so I'm not sure... Um, Especially, and I think you did a. Or we talked a little bit, uh, a little bit ago about the disparity of uh, you know time on the field versus pay of the coach versus pay to the club. Um, those things do matter uh, from in the confines of the field. If somebody spends two or three hours out there, whether it's free or whether you're paying somebody two thousand dollars an hour to do it, that's beneficial. If you spend an hour out there and 30 minutes of it's talking and you spend zero or $2,000, that's not beneficial. So I, uh, I thought that was a pretty interesting piece that you put together on the uh, contact time. And, yeah. and that's a real, that would be a real neat study to really dive into and get into the details about to see if player X or player Y because of contact time was any better or any worse after a year of play. Oh yeah. I, I, no, math can solve all if people want to know the math and it's not complicated math. Um, that's why I like, you know, Bo, Bo Byerly, you know, he's the one that uh, kind of just put that together and that's why I had him on the podcast. Um, Cause it made sense. I'm like, Oh, this is simplistic. And it got, a, I got a lot of email like, you know, thanking Bo for you know that podcast because they're like they're using that as like arguing with the administration of whatever club they're with like hey well, i don't understand we we got rained out for 
three weeks. We haven't had a game. Um, we want we want a refund. So uh, I'm all about refunds at this point. Let's, let's see how many <laughs> refunds we can produce. Uh, but uh, you, you bring up an interesting point with uh, contact time. I'd like to take contact time and understand, like, in the MMA world, they talk about the new generation of fighters coming through. And they're like, there's no way the guys today are going to be able to compete with these kids um, in 15, 20 years. They're just, they're different animals because they start up with wrestling, jiu-jitsu at three, four years old. And they're the future. In soccer, the future are the kids that start playing soccer at like 12, 13, 14 years old um, because they decided to and they can afford to or whatever it might be. But the kids that start at, say, two, three, four years old, Tiger Woods started that early. A lot of the elite elite start basically in the home, and but that tends to be more inner city than anything else. Those kids that started the right way, watching the game, loving the game, playing the game at such an early age aren't when they get the teenage years, a lot of them are gone because they can't afford to be part of of something or um, the structure isn't developed in a way they can actually showcase what they can do. Like an ODP that's actually free and they actually elevate that show this top state team for each age group and really showcase them. We, We don't do that. It's just another place where coaches can work weekends to make some good money because of a fundraising uh, concept of ODP uh, versus a true identification program. Yeah. So, uh, and to circle back around to Cisco there at the, you know, the, my last five years there, we primarily were were based at Grand Canyon university, obviously, but uh, most of our kids were coming from the inner city and, and we had some very good teams Obviously, they were uh, challenged uh, in finances. And then fast forward to about two years ago, I went over to California and I did a job over there for three years and, and, and the way I coached high school and became the director of coaching of a, of a fairly large club in Salinas, California. And uh, I'd never seen anything like it. There, there were very, very talented players um, throughout that uh, area of California but they would, uh, you know, the kids would come to school in the morning. Uh, they might go to practice. Then they go out and pick food in the uh, spinach in the spinach fields. And then uh, maybe go to bed 11 or 12 o'clock at night and then repeat the process. And most of these kids were food insecure, all kinds of stuff. Um, no money to, to live, uh, you know, without five or six families to a house. And uh, so we were fairly successful in getting some of those kids into college and then, and then um, getting their parents some financial assistance that they needed to get on, on their feet. But uh, right here in Phoenix, we have probably a hundred thousand people in the same situation that we would never even fathom would be the case in a, in, in our, you know, the, the United States, somebody's going to bed food insecure. They don't know if the lights are going to come on in the morning and that's actually happening in a lot of different areas that uh, we don't realize. But so what you're saying is when the, those kids get 14, 15, they fall off. Well, of course, because they have to work or yep. they have to do something to help their family. 
it, it's too expensive. Like, I don't know how, like, if all my kids, like, I had all my kids playing soccer at one time, but I was the director of coaching, and we got free everything just because I was running the club and everything. But now that I'm not doing that, I have two kids playing club. And it's so expensive. Luckily, I'm coaching my son, Jet, and I get everything free. I don't get paid there. I kind of like just make sure I don't have to pay for my kid. But I have to pay for Jack, which is not at an expensive club. But it's expensive, like surf cup. Sure. Just go in there. They were looking at twelve to $1,500. Um, they're going to Argentina. That's a $3,000 hit. I mean, the... It's get. I, I. How could you do that with three, four kids? I. I don't know how you can possibly survive, and I wouldn't do it. Like, I. I almost wish to a point I. I never like even introduced the game to my kids, because now it's just too expensive. Sure. You know, um, it's it's getting out of hand, but um, it's uh, it. I. I don't know what we're doing. It, the thing is, like, everything's expensive now. Like you really gotta decide what you want to do. Do you cancel all your uh, what you watch on TV? You gotta be careful what you eat. I mean, um, I, I get C four every day, which is horrible. It used to be four dollars. Now it's like a five seventy five um, within like a year. And now I'm like, all right, I gotta I gotta get off this stuff. Like I could be paying for my kids' uh, next trip on his stupid soccer team. Um, you know, after six months of not drinking. So I, I, I have to rethink what I do just to afford it. And I can't imagine, I don't know how people afford anything anymore. Like yeah. I, I have resources, I, you know, to ability to, to, to function. But if you're not making six figures in your home minimum, I, you can't do soccer and have everything you need as a family. I, I, I don't know how it's possible. Like I, I, I wonder, like, what are these people? Where are they getting their money, and how can they keep doing this rat race we're in? Yeah, you can only do so many car washes and tournaments. You know, yeah, you've been through it. Um, you know, some some of the some of the bigger tournaments, I guess, are are fairly lucrative, but uh, certainly none of the ones that I ever ran uh made a year out of uh finances for the club or or was any way to to forecast you know that we would be able to live on that kind of money till the end of the year so the funding has got to come from somewhere yeah well i don't know i i don't i don't know what the solve is i just know everything's getting more expensive in a sport that is the cheapest sport to play throughout the world except in, in america um Everywhere else, they're figuring it out without having to have a Bell Bank Park. You know, <laughs> like, it, it, I, I don't know what we're doing. Like, oh, you have to have this surface or we're not going to be able to play. We, it's a little park. We, we hardly, we have Bermuda grass, occasionally dirt, and then some bullets flying through there. And that's yeah, about do, it. Do they still have games there? I, I know they uh, have a field. I'm sure soccer's games. being played there. <laughs> yeah, soccer always be played there by somebody, but, um, yeah, so I, I don't know, but um, it, so so what are you? Do? You're coaching at Greenway High School. I am. Uh, I've been there for since 2007. Other than when I left for the 
three or four years that uh, I was over in California. Yeah. And then you coach all free high school. I did. Back well, when you, you, I had to vacate because <laughs> my boss at the time said, uh, uh, it's a conflict of interest. You can't be coaching high school. And to find out that it w- wasn't the case and I didn't, he just wanted to mess with me, which he did a great job of. And we'll not talk about that anymore. But um, uh, you're, so the only high schools you coached was all free and Greenway? I started at Deer Valley. That was uh, where I graduated okay. from school and uh, coached there for a few years uh, with Cass Saverino. Um, then I moved over to Agafria and then uh, ended up at Greenway because it was closest to my house, not necessarily because it was a great talent pool. Yeah. Yeah, Greenway. The, the demons. <laughs> yep, the demons. Oh, they got the demon demon themselves had right gr- there. Had a great year this year. Um they all underclassmen, so they can only go up from here. Oh, good. Well, maybe maybe we'll set up a scrim- scrimmage, uh, uh, Greenway and Millennium girls. <laughs> Perfect. But um, yeah. So so what else are you doing um within the soccer community? Are you are you coaching anywhere else? No. Oh, well, yeah. Actually, I'm training a, a under nineteen team up at CCV right okay. now. Um, just as a trainer, I'm not. Uh, spending my weekends and three day weekends on the sideline anymore, but it's, uh, it's fun. Um, You know, we couple of projects in the works to, to see what we can do here. I was uh, involved in the Salinas Valley regional sports complex when I was in California. So I'm looking for a a project to do here that might have a big impact for uh, a lot of different people. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, It's a lot of talk, but we'll find out. (laughs) I'm good at talking. But, uh, yeah, so, but, uh, yeah, I appreciate your insight and, uh, coming on the podcast. It's always good to hear from you. And it's, once I, uh, uh, retire from Phoenix college, we're going to have another podcast and tell the rest of the story because a lot of it's not appropriate for this, uh, this show, but it, it may be down the road. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Fun times. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Kenny. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you.